You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Hello once more. We've got a jam-packed episode today. Container lines are getting increasingly picky about who they deem worthy of their services. We look at why and what this means for forwarders. We also turn our gaze on cargo thefts and cultural wars. Carriers are buying more airlines, but to what end? We examine what we can expect on the Asian Europe trade this year and how line and network reorganizations are impacting the less lucrative trades. And we get the latest on air and shipping freight rates. I'm joined today by Kerry Logistics' Emma Rowland, TAC Indexes Peyton Burnett, and Eric Nielsen, Global Development Director at Cargo Gulf, Alpha Liners' Stefan Verbertmoos, Lodestar Managing Editor Gavin Van Maal and Mike Yarwood, TT Club's Managing Director for Loss Prevention. There are thieves infiltrating and, and identifying vulnerabilities through the supply chain. They're watching all the time when they find and see vulnerabilities, they're able to mobilize and, and strike. Hello everybody, I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar Podcast. Here we are once more, and guess what? There's a lot going on in the world of logistics and freight, and when isn't there? Joining me today is a man who is at his primeval best in 2022, which rather aptly is the year of the tiger. Aptly, I say, because my co-host is famed at Lodestar Towers for his cat-like qualities, particularly when navigating the gangplank to his river barge. Welcome. Gavin Van Maal, Managing Editor of The Lodestar. Good afternoon, mate. I should tell you that actually I, I take a dip in the river about once a year. I normally lose my footing. I think when you're referring to cat-like qualities, I thought it was my propensity to take uh, short naps at any given point during the day. So it's, it's not tiger-like then, it's more like tiger light. <laughs> yes, exactly. We've got a lot to get to, and I'm sure you're keen to move on from your gangplank exploits. <laughs> so, Gav, one of the big stories on the low star this month, in fact, we've ran a series of stories on this, and it's what I'm going to call Mers versus forwarders, but it's more nuanced than that. Essentially, some forwarders are not very happy, and I quote, at being shut out from some of Maersk's services, are they? What appears to have happened, we, we first got wind in very late 2021 when it first came out from Australia and New Zealand that there were reports that Hamburg Sud, the Maersk subsidiary, as well as Maersk itself, was refusing to sign any uh, contracts, long-term or short-term contracts with freight forwarders and was henceforth dealing only with their shipper customers. And, and forwarders who wanted to book with Maersk were simply said, you can book via Maersk Spot, their online booking platform, but that's it. So there's no contracts, there's no short-term rates, there's no spot rates negotiated over the phone. There is only Maersk Spot, which has its own issues. And, and you know, given that our report suggests that that, has, that strategy has since been rolled out globally, what you're effectively looking at is that the freight forwarding community has effectively lost 15% of its annual um, capacity. The implication of that, of course, is then what the other carriers do in reaction to that, that strategy. 
and what the forwarders do in reaction to that strategy. There's two things that grab me from what you've just said, possibly looking at this a little bit, just to give the carrier's viewpoint. They've always competed with forwarders for customers. So is this really different? And secondly, Maersk specifically have been very open about their intention to sell integrated supply chain products direct to customers. So when they're upfront about competing against 3PLs and forwarders for shipper contracts, is it really any surprise that this is now coming out? Well, okay, let's, let's talk about the integrated supply chain strategy of Maersk first. I mean, is this a surprise? Probably not. It rather depends on your perspective. The last time you had me on the podcast, just before the Christmas break, you know, I mentioned that I thought that Maersk really, in reality, increasingly resembles a contract logistics company. You know, the only difference being that its assets are ships, ports, and containers, rather than warehouses, trucks, and pallets. And this strategy is obviously to handle very large volumes for a much smaller number of clients who are locked into multi-year contracts. I mean, we understand that, you know, to put this into perspective, Maersk has something around 70,000 shipper customers, right? So there's an awful lot of volume that can be sort of blended in and uh, uh, that it can carry on its, on its capacity. And blending that kind of contract logistics container shipping operation with a lot of spot cargoes booked with the whole range of forwarders, it's bureaucratically, I mean, from a management perspective, it's burdensome, right? If you have fewer customers, then you can concentrate on your customer service with those customers. There's less chance of things going wrong, of shipments getting missing, all that sort of thing. So did we find it a surprise that, that Merce has decided that actually it doesn't need to deal with smaller forwarders anymore? No, it's probably not a surprise given how tight capacity is. And is it justified? Well. It's Merck's capacity. I mean, you know, they've invested all these billions into these ships. They can do with it what they want. Personally, I find it sort of surprising that, that this approach has taken them to the point that they're unwilling to sign any long-term contracts with the larger 3PLs. Those block space agreements between the large 3PLs and the carriers have always been a very staple part of carrier forward bookings. Gav, I did invite the European Forwarders Association Claycat on, but they declined citing sensitivity. And we'll be talking to Maersk about this in the next episode of the Lone Star podcast. But setting Maersk aside for a moment, what's the approach of all the carriers? Are we expecting similar sorts of strategies, given that they're actually, they're not trying to do these integrated supply chains quite so much or as quite as openly as Maersk? Are they looking at this in a different way? It varies carrier to carrier, right? It also varies trade lane to trade lane, but some appear to be following a similar strategy. I mean, our, our forwarding sources tell us, for example, that CMA, CGM is possibly poised to go down the same route. I can give you one example that we do have was we interviewed a, a smaller freight forwarder who's very active. His main trade lane is, is South America to Europe. So on that particular North-South trade, East Coast, South America to Europe, you've effectively got four carriers, Maersk, MSC, CMA, CGM, and Hapag Lloyd. And they don't work in the normal alliances that we know on the East-West trades. You know, it's a whole combination of different uh, vessel sharing agreements. Now on that, firstly, you've got Maersk, right? They're not dealing with any forwarders, big or small or big. CMA, CGM, and Hapag, according to our source, said that would only deal with the largest three PLs and wouldn't deal with smaller freight forwarders at all. 
while MSC was the stand was the outlier, MSC will deal with their customer of any size, although it does be said at, at that time, it did have the highest rates. So, you know, small forwarders were effectively left with just one service provider in, in a free market could basically charge what that market was willing to pay. So the indications are that some forwarders will follow this. I mean, I, I thought it was very interesting just a, a week or so ago that CMA CGM launched its spot on online booking system, which to all intents and purposes seems to be along much of the same lines as most spot and perhaps spot on could be a, you know, the development of that could be a precursor to this, you know, the CMA CGM say, look, okay, we're only spending, we're going to spend our energies and our time and our salespeople will be tied up with large BCOs and, and, but hey, forwarders, you can still book with us, but it, you just have to go to spot on. Just a couple of quick points, Gav. I mean, one, this isn't the first time that we've, we've seen carriers deselecting segments of customers and we're in this particularly unique market. And we know that whether it's in Europe or elsewhere, we'll, people will be looking at competition issues. And I know forwarding organizations are already pushing for a reevaluation of exactly how the lines are acting at the moment, but we'll come back to that in later podcasts. But this parking of the container line tanks, so to speak, on the forwarding lawn. Is this particularly sensitive right now because of the huge profits carriers are making perhaps, or, or because rates are so high and finding slots so difficult? That's such an interesting question, isn't it? It's this thing that the carriers have always competed with forwarders for customers, right? So what's different there? Yeah, and you've sort of highlighted, you know, carriers have had sort of logistics arms and or forwarding operations for a year. So it's not new per se, but what is different is that carriers have more money than ever. And that sort of balance sheets that they've got, it gives them the luxury of choosing customers that they decide. They can pick and choose which customers they want to, to deal with. Additionally, they are unquestionably offering a greater variety of services. CMA CGM has its own cargo airline now. Maersk has a cargo airline now. I mean, Maersk has always had some interest in the aviation field, but it's more pronounced now than it ever was. I think the other question though is, is that, and I think this is what you're sort of implying, is, is, is it what the market actually wants to see, right? Does the market want to be offered all these services, this variety of services by one service provider and, and, a, and a service provider that comes from a traditionally not very customer-focused sector, right? I mean, the line of shipping industry isn't known for its well-kept relationships with its customers. So I'm not so sure that the that shippers or forwarders actually particularly want this from um, the shipping lines. It may well be that Maersk's top 100 shippers do want it, right? But that's really a slightly different situation. But the rest of the market, the, all the many hundreds of thousands, probably millions of SME shippers, where do they go? But yes, I mean, the carrier profit issue is sensitive given the, the latest forecast is, is probably another 200 billion for the industry. In terms of those profits, Gav, I mean, we heard on the last podcast from Zenita, how much more cargo is moving under contract now, rather than shippers relying on the spot market. So they're trying to avoid these high, high premiums. I'm just looking at those rates as they are now, as we hit Chinese new year, the holidays at the start of February, Shanghai Rotterdam rates have been edging up. Um, and they're around $15,000 on the spot market, according to Zenita, with priority shipment fees on top. Shanghai LA is up 10,000K plus premium payments on top on the spot market. 
His editors, Peter Sand, also put out a very interesting paper in late January, noting that intra-Asia rates have been spiking, and this is adding to manufacturing costs in the region, which Lodestar covered, Gav. Yeah, that's right. So the uh, spot rates from the main Chinese ports to the main Japanese and South Korean ports is now at about 1,800 US per 40 foot. That's up from 1,400 US per 40 foot. So shippers in the region are looking at a 25 to 30% hike in freight rates. Oh, there's, there's very good reasons for that, which we'll be looking at a bit later when we talk to Alpha Liner Stefan Verbergbus about how and why carriers have been shifting capacity around and how that's affected the supply-demand balances that, of course, drives those rates. On those east-west shipping rates, it's not unusual, of course, that we would see very, very solid spot rates ahead of Chinese New Year. We see that most years. We see that pretty much every year. And we'll be zooming in on that Asia-Europe trade a little bit later when I speak to Kerry Logistics, Emma Rowlands. But what really struck me this January is we'd normally also see air cargo rates peaking ahead of factory closures in China. But this year, they've gone slightly off-piste from historical precedent, at least. There was a bit of a downward correction in prices on lanes out of China to Europe and the US in the middle of January. I asked Peyton Burnett, a former air charter broker, based out of Hong Kong and managing director of TAC Index. What had prompted this? For the first half of January, especially outbound from Hong Kong and Shanghai to the US and Europe, the rates have been softer than expected. For instance, I was actually expecting to be a bump in the rates after the announcement of the Cathay Pacific flights coming off the market early in January. And interestingly, as we were waiting for the numbers to be published from TAC Index at that point in time, the, the, the numbers actually went down. And not only did they go down out of Hong Kong, but they also went down out of Shanghai. And sort of what that showed in the market at that point in time was volumes being low due to production issues, or it might have been due to the Olympics. So as we were going into the second half of January, the market started to pick up, but maybe not as strongly as expected. So it's a little bit of a shorter, sharper sort of, or, or shorter peak season than previous year. Having said that, the actual rates from Hong Kong and Shanghai to Europe and US were still up 40 to 50% year on year. So again, the market is still quite strong. Okay, so you are you are getting a sense that, you know, as we as we hit this final week before the Chinese New Year holidays, that rates and shipment volumes have picked up. Or are you still hearing that logistics operations in Hong Kong and the mainland China around Shanghai perhaps are are bedeviled in by these strict COVID lockdowns and quarantines that have been impacting everyone from truck drivers to ground handlers to ports and shipping to pilots? And uh, this has been severely limiting air cargo capacity, has it? Yeah, I, I would say there's two items that are impacting the market at the moment. So one, yes, is COVID particularly affecting sort of airline operations. It, it might not be the staff on the ground really in Hong Kong or Shanghai. It might be actually the airline operations in both the US and Germany or Europe affecting their operations. So, so that's been a big struggle for the airlines. Secondly, you know, the rates are going up pre-Chinese New Year. Having said that, from what I'm hearing in the market, there's still big volumes ready to ship, still in Q1, 
and what what a number of people are doing are waiting for Chinese peak to have happened <laughs> and then picking up the lower rates coming off Chinese New Year. Uh, but again, what I'm hearing as well is the rates aren't coming off as again as much as people expected. So there is a some discount, but not much of a discount pushing through into February and March this year. So you, uh, there's a certain amount of volatility in this market then in terms of trying to read what's going to happen this, these next few weeks. It sounds like there's still a lot of cargo out there, but with all these bottlenecks that we're hearing about, you know, it's anyone's guess. Well, the, the, the main shipments that are really looking to move in Q1, and this is the stuff that's coming, you know, in February and March, are the PPE test kits. And there's a big backlog or, or demand for these test kits. But obviously, they're trying to get the best price possible in, in the month. At the same time, generally, people are behind in production. And so production is ramping up over the course of the year. So again, there's not really a let up there. So what you'll be finding is both the PPE, whether it's test equipment or other stuff, is competing against the general production goods throughout the year. Payton Bennett, thank you very much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks, Mike. Gav, just looking at that interaction again between air and shipping markets, we've seen carriers investing heavily up and down supply chains since the pandemic struck and they've, they've hit pay dirt with these massive windfalls. In late January, this went up another gear when MSC and Lufthansa joined together to make a bid to take over ITA Airways, which began operations only in October, replacing the defunct Alitalia. Are we expecting more of these investments to come? Lufthansa was bidding for Alitalia previous to MSC's involvement, but there were very clear signs that that wasn't going to be acceptable to the Italian government. I mean, Lufthansa owns Brussels Airlines, it owns Austrian Airlines, it owns Swiss Airlines. The idea that it would be further extended into full ownership of ex-Alitalia, it just looked like a political hurdle too far. So MSC coming into it with its proud Italian family ownership, it, it sweetens that pill for the Italian government. Is MSC's involvement in the deal a, a cargo play? It could be. I mean, Alitalia isn't, has never been a, a huge player in the cargo market, but there's plenty of belly hold space. And I, one of the things I thought was probably more interesting about it was the possible synergies between Alitalia and MSC's cruise business, which I, I think is, you know, which has obviously had a very, very difficult pandemic. Italy is a huge destination for cruise passengers. And, and so I see the synergies there as being something that would be really attractive to the MSC management. Will we see other shipping lines buying into airlines? So I think it, it, it's, it depends on the target. It depends on the acquirer. And tell me this, which other shipping lines could you see buying a stake in a, in a, in an airline, you know, yeah, the Japanese, so MYK already owns. Um, all Nippon car, all Nippon Airways, Anna. Evergreen has already has an airline. Uh, Costco and WOCL, well, they're owned by the Chinese government, which owns the Chinese airlines. And then beyond that, it's difficult to see. Would Zim buy into LL? <laughs> I, I, you know, I think it's, I think that's a really, really tricky one. We looked at the Trans-Pacific trade in quite a lot of detail in the previous Lodestar podcast. So in the name of balance, let's hear now from the forwarding front line on the Asia-Europe trade. 
I'd like to welcome UK-based Emma Rowlands, who's the Strategic Sales Director for Kerry Logistics, which of course is headquartered in Hong Kong. Hello, Emma. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. I'm, I'm very interested to get your take on the Asia-Europe trade particularly, but let's turn to China, if we may. Chinese New Year has been arriving when we've already got this tightness in supply across all those transport modes. Ahead of Chinese New Year, did you see a, a surge in demand from customers trying to get that cargo out early, worried about delays in shipments or worried about delays in the manufacturing plants themselves? Yeah, that's definitely an interesting question, Mike. And we've seen a huge change in behavior from our core volume customers. Our operations team have worked very hard engaging with customers. 2021, as you know, has been very challenging for all customers. The longer lead times have made it extremely difficult for people to operate in a just-in-time model. Most importers have actually just resigned themselves to building in much, much longer lead times for their shipments. Given all that uncertainty of when the cargo will actually arrive into the UK and into Europe, the trend has been to ship earlier than usual. And this has definitely been reflected in the surge in volumes that we recorded in December. And our customers certainly have been advising that their warehouses are full to capacity. What has Kerry been doing to mitigate this for customers? Is there any specific actions that you've been taking? Yeah, for sure. A lot of the conversation has arisen around where we have a lot of volume coming in and we're trying to mitigate the risk by spreading those shipments across a variety of carriers, looking at different ports of entry into the EU. We don't want all the cargo arriving in one vessel. That's going to create a lot of difficulties for the operations team in managing deliveries into their DCs within the free time periods. We've also seen a lot of congestion in factories at China due to the issues with trucking, drivers, and even equipment availability. This has caused huge backlogs in the factories. So what we've been doing is looking at where we can provide a staging post with our warehouses across China for cargo that's ready at the factory actually needs to move out. So we're enabling the factory to continue production. Just looking beyond Chinese New Year, particularly focusing in on that China-Europe trade, the IMF has just released its latest global economic outlook. We're looking at slower growth this year, um, down from 5.9% last year to 4.4%. But what really struck me in these numbers is the IMF has now downgraded its growth forecasts for the US, Germany, and the UK quite significantly. And it cites energy and wage costs, but it's again and again and again in this report, it's talking about supply chain shocks. What are you expecting from Europe in terms of freight demand or economic growth? And, and what are the challenges, particularly on that Asia-Europe lane for you? Our predictions are that space and container availability will continue to be difficult throughout 2022. Our response as a business has been to continue to promote alternatives, such as the rail, the road and charter solutions which we've seen a huge growth for our business in 2021. The key point for that, for our customers, is to ensure that we're giving them an informed choice, which is based around costs and a realistic lead time. With the escalating sea freight costs, the difference in the price between rail and sea from China to the EU has drastically reduced, and we've actually experienced far more inquiries than we ever, ever have before. Even though there have been some issues with congestions and border crossings on the rail, the transit time can still be substantially quicker than shipping by sea. If you think about um, northern ports in China, where transit times can actually be up to 60 days. And unbelievably, we've even been offering a road solution. We can collect anywhere in China to any destination across the EU. 
And actually with the two drivers, we can offer the express solution, which at best can be 19 to 22 days from Northern China and 22 to 24 days from Southern China. So this idea that we can offer faster transit time with a flexibility of collection on any day and the ability to collect the cargo along the journey has really created a viable alternative for our customers. That's some drive that Emma. What, what sort of price point does that come in versus shipping? I think if you're looking at the, the peak where the, the rates have got up to 17, even 20 in some cases, you still could get the rates from something like 20 to 25k and door-to-door service as well. So, you know, it's definitely become more of a viable alternative due to the escalation in the rates um, on the ocean frame. Just for, for our listeners around the world, we've covered a lot of these choke points, particularly in the US or LA Long Beach, and we've looked at some of those intermodal problems in the, in the US, but where are the bottlenecks once you get that cargo to Europe or at the moment? Well, we've started to see that port congestion in places like Hamburg and Antwerp have eased somewhat. And the real issues, particularly for the UK, are in port operations in places like Felixstowe. They continue to remain very, very challenging. Um, our strategy has been to utilise the rail services where we can to move those boxes up to regional railheads and then provide a local trucking shunt from that railhead to DCs. Um, we continue to use the feeder services extensively into Liverpool, Teesport, places like Bristol to try and minimise the disruption. We've even shipped directly into EU ports and then actually trucked the cargo over into the UK to try and improve the lead time with some of the cargo that we have that is very, very urgent. Emma Rollins, thank you for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Thank you very much, Mike. Gav, just listening to Emma and some of those economic downgrades by the IMF, where do you see the risk for Europe's economy and how that plays out for freight and logistics this year? Well, I mean, Europe's supply chains remain as snarled up as they were in 2021, and it's going to take a very long time for these to become unsnarled in every mode. Shipping, whether it's ports, whether it's ferries between Great Britain and the uh, mainland, the roads across Europe, it's everywhere you look, there are issues. And, and huge backlogs of cargo. And those, those backlogs obviously need to be sorted out before the, the new wave of volumes coming to Europe can enter the supply chain. And it goes right the way downstream as well, Mike, of course, you know, it's, it's all the way from containers and, and air cargo ULDs arriving in airports and ports, all the way through to, to warehouse and distribution facilities across the continent. In addition to that, of course, there are, there are the existential threats that everyone will be well aware of, you know, energy costs are absolutely soaring as anyone who's recently had to pay gas or electric, no doubt have recognized. Inflation is higher than most official figures suggest. And, um, oh yeah, Russia's going to invade Ukraine or it's not or whatever. I don't know. I'm not a military strategist, but it certainly, it certainly adds to the overall perception of far higher risk profile. In the last episode of the Lodestar podcast, we touched upon how rampant US consumerism has sucked ships on to the Trans-Pacific and to a lesser extent, but equally important extent, onto the Asia-Europe trade and how this has had a global ripple impact across the box trades around the world. Alpha Lion has done some great work on this topic, particularly in a report in late January. I'd like to welcome Stefan Verbergmus, which I've probably pronounced incorrectly, who's the shipping analyst and editor for North Europe. Hello, Stefan. 
and apologies for that pronunciation. Hello, Mike. Well, you did rather well. We try our best at the Lodestar. We fail quite regularly, unfortunately. <laughs> Stefan, your latest research is excellent, excellent stuff, by the way. Uh, it shows that over the last year, there's been a big increase in the percentage of the global box fleet operating on the main east-west trades. Is this primarily driven by the Transpac? Yes, it certainly is. We saw capacity between Asia and Europe rising by 10%, which is largely due to delivery of new Megamax ships to carriers SC, MACGM, MSC, or Evergreen. But the biggest capacity increases were indeed between Asia and North uh, America. Over the course of last year, some 1.3 million TU capacity has been added to this trade, which is a massive, staggering 31% capacity increase. And this uh, 1.3 million TU capacity increase even exceeds the total seller feed growth, which stood at uh, 1.1 million TU last year. So that means that uh, carriers have really shifted their offering from other trade lanes to the Transpac. And what's driving this strategy, Stefan? Is it, is it purely about carriers maximizing that return per slot? Yes. Well, after a period of, of very big losses in liner shipping, one cannot blame the carriers by being attracted to the gold mine that the Trans-Pacific has, has become. We see their sky-high spot freight rates and they are resulting in enormous revenue. And, and the carriers can maybe have the same revenue for a, a 40-foot container spot transport from Shanghai to, uh, to Europe. But that's, that's double the distance. So if we calculate uh, the income versus the distance, while Shanghai and California is, is at the moment certainly the most interesting route, and the volumes are there, and port congestion has forced the carriers to even deploy more ships on that route to keep cargo flowing. So that's still the most profitable, even though you're looking at those long delays in port. Yes, it is. It is. Uh, it continues to be like this. Uh, we we did a comparison between the, the spot rates to the distances of the trades. When if we take $15,000 as a rate for uh, a transport from Shanghai to California, yeah, this is the most rewarding trade you can uh, can do. And in terms of global trade, Stefana, from your research, is, this is a, a zero-sum game, isn't it? Which trades and economies are losing out from this displacement of global container shipping capacity? Well, our compari uh, capacity comparison has clearly identified three trades where capacity went down last year. These are intra-Europe, services to and from Africa, but most importantly, uh, intra-Asian traffic. And the latter is maybe not surprising as uh, many of these small Asian carriers suddenly start sending ships to the United States. But apart from that, big carriers as Maersk and MSA have also uh, organized extra services and other lines uh, started to offering um, extra ad hoc sailings. But it's important that we do not see this as a situation of a, of a CEO of a big carrier saying, okay, I'm going to stop a service to Africa and send these ships to, uh, to California. It's more like a carrier picking up his phone to the owner of a chartered ship, asking him to extend uh, a charter of uh, a ship of which uh, the, the charter will expire. And the owner will likely respond that he already had a much higher offer from a small shipping company or even forwards that want a ship deal for a Trans-Pacific voyage. And understandably, the ship will be fixed to the highest bidder, which leaves the carrier which had the ship for, let's say, an African service without a ship, and he will not be able to, uh, to find an affordable replacement ship. So this, is, this trend is a bit more nuanced than just carriers following that bottom line. It's, it, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. Yeah, it's absolutely the play of the charter market, and um, ships are in a very high demand, and then who's prepared to, to, to pay the, the, the most? will have the ship. And if you see the high uh, Trans-Pacific spot rates, um, the newcomers, which totally depend on the, on the spot cargo, 
they can afford this because they, they make a calculation. Okay. This ship can carry 1040 foot containers, it's a small ship, but they see the revenue and the, the high charter rate is justified with paying the, the same high charter to keep the ship on Europe, Africa, to give an example, would not be affordable. So that's really the charter market play. Is, is there any moving parts in all of this, Stefan, that makes you think this means of operating will change in any way during 2022? Well, all depends on, uh, or much depends on, on port congestion, because a lot of capacity is now blocked because of port congestion. As soon as the ports are starting to, to cope again with the traffic, if, if there are no uh, port labor out for COVID and, and, and then the flows improve, already a, a lot of capacity will become available again without having to add extra ships. Having extra ships would, of course, also help. And there have been, it has been a massive ordering uh, last year, but the ships ordered last year will only come in service in, uh, in 2023, 2024. So on the short term, the normalization of the market should come from the, uh, the easing of congestion. So there's a lot to watch this year, Stefan. Thank you very much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. You're welcome. Gav, one of the trades that has been particularly impacted by this movement of capacity by carriers has been the transatlantic where rates really, we've been covering this for a long time. It was a pretty sort of unexciting trade lane for years and years. Rates didn't really move a great deal until we had a pandemic, did they? No, I mean, it was, it was resolutely one of the most boring trades to cover for <laughs> container shipping journalists, but yeah, they've been as affected as everyone else. Headline figures here at the Rotterdam to New York route is up. Yeah, about 180% year on year, uh, New York, Rotterdam's up about hundred percent year on year. So definitely been affected in the same way. The, the other thing that, that we have noticed is in order to avoid the West coast congestion, of course, a lot of us importers have been rerouting their cargo to go through the East coast ports. So of course this has a direct effect on the transatlantic shippers because it's caused a quite severe port congestion in Savannah, Charleston, New York, because there's been a big rush of cargo coming either via Panama or via the Suez canals. And as we've seen in other trades, port congestion has been one of the primary drivers of high freight rates. We're talking about the domino effect, which seems sort of apt as we, we launch upon a new cold war uh, in the Ukraine and <laughs> Eastern Europe. Just turning to the Middle East, which is another area that's been, of course, like everywhere has been affected by these shifts in capacity. I was talking to one forwarder over there who told me that getting affordable and timely equipment and slots for export has been becoming increasingly difficult in recent times, but not everyone in the Middle East is having such a tough time coping with these tremendous recalibrations of liner networks. I'd like to welcome Hans-Herrick Nielsen, Global Development Director at Cargo Gulf a very well-known UAE-based NVOCC, which is a non-vessel operating common carrier. For anyone out there who gets lost in our industry's labyrinth of acronyms, hello, Hans Henrik. And why don't you explain very quickly what an NVOCC is and how you provide your services? This is very different to forwarding, isn't it? First of all, thank you for having me, Mike. Yes, it is indeed very different to, uh, to freight forwarding. So we term ourselves as a hardcore NVOCC. There are many companies that call themselves NVOCCs. Uh, typically, they would just issue their bill of lading, but they would piggyback on a larger container operator's container fleet and their volume service contract. We are very different. We operate with our own container fleet. We have our own long-term slot charter agreements. We have our own terminal and stack agreements in all the ports that we operate. 
and we set our own pricing. We set our own demerits and detention tariffs. And we, of course, operate under our own bill of lading as a contract of carriage. Separately, also to uh, to what a, a freight forwarder would call themselves an NUCC, as well as that we also have additional insurance licenses. For instance, we have a ship's operator um, license, which means that we have a far larger coverage in terms of claims, in terms of claims to vessels, to terminals, to equipment, and to any kind of uh, accidents that could potentially happen. So it's a very different game. And obviously, we operate in any respect just as another shipping line. We are just smaller. That, I think, is the best definition of what we do. And your portfolio of services is essentially full container load consolidation services to global markets, to and from the Arabian Gulf and Red Sea, which which is a market we've just been discussing on this podcast, essentially in relationship to how this rampant U.S. consumerism has sucked ships into those trans-Pacific trades and also into the Asia-Europe trade and this ripple effect that this has had on ocean container trades. What has this looked like from your perspective or from the perspective of shippers, MVOCs and forwarders in general in the Middle East in this past 18 months in, in terms of rates and liner capacity that's available to you? Well, there's no doubt that there has been some tonnage withdrawn from the larger MMOs. You can perhaps take it back to the ever given incident in Suez uh, last year, uh, where you had a lot of the European tonnage that used to go into Diablali en route on the way out to Asia. Those calls have now been withdrawn. That means that transit times have also extended significantly from Europe. And some of the services that were provided by the well-known MLOs from, from Asia to the Gulf, some of them have also been withdrawn. They have been replaced, though, by smaller tonnage, and particularly by, uh, by feeder tonnage. So commercial feeders, and that is how we operate, that we sort of share the burden. They, the feeders, they provide the vessels, the, the port agency, the rotation, the crewing, and scheduling, and we come in with our equipment, our agency network, our customers, and our pricing. So we then slot charter with them on long-term basis. We call it debt freight slot charter agreements. So we have to pay used on use, so the commercial risk is with us. And that has been, to a large extent, replacing the volume that other really well-known global MLO brands have withdrawn. I'm not saying that it has been like for like, but it has uh, not been that bad. Yes, the rates have gone up. It's also a part of the the whole logistic chains have been longer because of, of delays, because of congestion, feeders, connections have been messed about. So that, of course, has added to it. But uh, I would say that the business into the Gulf is running fairly smoothly. It's not perfect, but it's a lot better than what you see, for instance, on the US West Coast. And I think also from a volume point of view, I know a lot of people, they talk about that the rates have gone up just purely because the supply chain has been extended. And I don't think that is 100% true for the Arabian Gulf. There's a very, very strong oil price right now, which of course is very important for the economies here in the Middle East. And also you have in UAE, uh, you have an economy that has been open more or less throughout the whole COVID pandemic. So... We walk around with masks here, but apart from that, life is pretty much normal. And that clearly had a very, very positive impact on the economy. So consumer goods are coming in. We're typically booking out three, four weeks in advance on all our main trades from, from Asia. And today we've got five different services, which I believe is the highest frequency that service offering of any 
in the Middle East right now. Hans Henry, can you just give me a, a feel for, not necessarily on your own services, but in general in the Middle East, where are rates, transit times, and sort of how long it takes to get boxes out of the port? Where are those metrics now compared to, say, a year ago or pre-COVID? So I would say for us, we have services that are running from, from Shanghai into Jeblali, uh, which is today the fastest transit time in the market of 15 days port to port. We got Shekou to Jeblali of 11 days. We got Port Kilang, Singapore into Jeblali of around between 10 to 12 days. We've just recently started a new service, which is direct from Ho Chi Minh and Lao Shabat in Thailand with a transit time of respectively 19 and 16 days. So if anything, it's better, but from our point of view, but of course, if you are a freight forwarder or a shipper that has relied upon some of the more traditional solutions that they were using three, four years ago, then maybe their, their equation is not as uh, positive as, as the one that, that we, we look at. From a rate point of view, yes, the rates have gone up. They obviously they have, they were too low before as well. I don't think that you see these kind of very, very odd and very, very high spikes of rates. We're talking uh, typically China into Jeblali, a 40-foot container is in the range of between six and a half to seven thousand dollars. So from Port Kilang, Singapore, a little bit less. Vietnam, Thailand, also about the same as as upper China. And uh, these are really rates which are, in my opinion, fair. And yes, can we make money on that? Yes, we can. And, And that, of course, is also part of our continued growth because we know we can make money. So we invest those money back into the business with new services. Thank you very much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast, Hans Henrik. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Gav, I was surprised to see a story in the Daily Mail, which carried this rather tabloidy headline, if that's a word. And it went like this. Thefts. Woke Los Angeles DA George Gascon blames Union Pacific for freight train package thefts and blast rail companies own security after Governor Newsom admitted the railroad looked like a third world country. Now, we've covered cargo thefts, hopefully in slightly more sober terms, the Lodestar. I think there's two points here. One, did you ever imagine freight and logistics would become embroiled in the cultural walls like this? Uh, and two, this isn't just a tabloid headline, is it? It's cargo is particularly vulnerable right now. As to your first point, yeah, we've seen this before, Mike. You and I worked on a newspaper 15 years ago. So when, you know, there's people smuggling through lorries on the cross-channel routes. We, we called them clandestines at the time. This is out of Sangat, isn't it, near Calais? Yeah, that's right. In the closure of Sangat and the UK government introducing £2,000 fine per person for anyone found in the back of a truck. That was then levied to the trucking operator, whether they knew about it or not. It's the nature of the business, right? And the nature of cross-border international business like this means that it, it routinely becomes embroiled in, in cultural wars, unfortunately. And pretty much wherever you look at, you know, immigration or illegal immigration, none of this has gone away, has it? No, drug smuggling more than ever. You know, there's more drugs being smuggled in containers and ships than ever before. 
cargo is always vulnerable to being stolen. And it's probably not surprising that in, in a time when greater numbers of people in more and more societies are nearer and nearer the breadline that they're resorting to criminality to try and make up, you know, to try and make a living. Should we be surprised about that? I don't think so, really. You know, I think there are, there is, you know, that what, what hasn't changed is that there's still stuff that we can do to make cargo more secure. The vast number of insecure parking facilities across the UK, Europe, the US, this all means, you know, this can, this would be a very simple way of, of making it harder to steal cargo and put less drivers in danger. And of course, the other thing, Gav, is when we have these really stretched supply chains and multiple bottlenecks, then cargo ends up sitting around for longer and in possibly in more temporary storage areas, which is something... I picked up with TT Club, which has been working with BSI Screen to track the deteriorating cargo theft situation. I asked Mike Yarwood, TT Club Managing Director for Loss Prevention, exactly how bad things are right now. So what, one of the things that we've seen and noticed, certainly in quarters three and four in the US of 2021, was kind of a stark move away from sort of theft of vehicles and theft of cargo in transit and quite a, a substantial increase in thefts from facilities. So warehouses, storage facilities. And I think part of that strategy change with the criminals is kind of evidence that they are very agile. They're very aware of what's going on in the supply chain and they're able to quickly adapt to sort of attack those areas that are most vulnerable. And I think another thing we've seen, albeit evidence is hard to come by is an increase in the insider threat. So criminals either recruiting personnel within a warehouse facility or within a facility to allow them almost seamless access. We had a great example of this towards the end of last year, where criminals were able to access a, a secure, what was a secure warehouse. They accessed the warehouse, stole a hundred thousand pound or more worth of cargo, but didn't get caught on any alarms, any CCTV. So they they had invaluable knowledge of the security facility within that warehouse. They knew when to strike, how to strike and how to get in, get the cargo out and leave the area without alerting anyone. So, and again, you know, it's, it's very difficult to do that without a really in-depth knowledge of the security system and, and how security plays out on site. Did you ever imagine that cargo theft at our business would become part of the mainstream media and cultural wars even? I, I think that's a, a really great question because cargo theft has always existed in our industry and depending on how it's reported and the, the level of reporting in certain locations and, and countries really determines to what degree that comes through in the, in the mainstream press and, and it hasn't over the years. But as you say now, the, the sort of supply chain crisis that we're going through at the moment, so the delays, the accumulation of cargo, the pinch points through the supply chain are all kind of adding up. They're more in the public eye now than they ever have been before. And I think this is just another component of that story that's starting to come through into the mainstream press. Yeah, the photographs and images that we, we saw in LA are pretty stark and disturbing. We have within our data set, other similar trends, not quite on the same scale on the rail in Italy. But again, not quite on the same scale, but there are thieves infiltrating and, and identifying vulnerabilities through the supply chain. And these guys are extremely well-versed, sophisticated, 
and they're very agile. So they're watching all the time when they find and see vulnerabilities, they're able to mobilize and, and strike. Is there any preventative takeaways that you can suggest to, to our listeners, Mike? Yeah, I think one of the, the main areas really is around sort of due diligence where it comes to cargo crime. So understanding exactly who you're employing, um, exactly who you are subcontracting to third party security firms, really doing some sort of in, in-depth background checks into who those guys are, that their legitimacy, that there are more difficult areas that we're seeing to combat for legitimate operators around fraud. We're seeing a lot of fake carriers pop up, you know, so a carrier reporting to be a, a legitimate trucking company will arrive to collect a load, duly collect the load and then disappear, never to be seen again. And again, they're very difficult to identify at the time, but in hindsight, one or two more, you know, fundamental checks might just have uncovered the fact that there was a fraud taking place and allowed someone to intervene to prevent that, that theft from, from occurring. But I think it, a lot of it is around sort of awareness as well. So being aware of the different strategies that are happening in the locality that you operate. There, there are stark differences regionally around the world. We are fortunate in the UK and in Western Europe in the large part that there are less violent crimes associated with cargo theft, but that's a very, very different picture when you start to look at Central and Southern America and South Africa and some of the Southern African countries. So locality and geography really does determine as well what the strategies are. So having a, a great awareness of what risks are posed to your shipments really then helps to build sort of that security pattern that you can adopt and be successful. Like so much else in supply chain, it's all about risk management. Mike Yarwood, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. No problems. Thank you very much for inviting me along. Just as we're finishing up, Gav, there was one more story that caught my attention in recent weeks. For anyone listening who's attended London Shipping Week, Nusrat Ghani is someone I'm sure you remember. She was sacked as the UK's transport minister in a mini reshovel early in 2020. Given the high esteem she was held in by everyone I know in shipping and the low performance bar for ministers in Boris Johnson's government, this was quite a shock at the time. She now claims she was told by government whips she was sacked because, and I quote, Muslim woman minister status was making colleagues feel uncomfortable. What a horrible sentence that is. Gav, did you cover Nusra Ghani? when she was transport minister at all? Not a great deal, but I do, I do have colleagues in the, in, you know, peers of mine who did, and were extremely complimentary about her, far more complimentary than they were about most politicians. And I think this is a shameful episode. It really is. I mean, it's not really a surprise, is it? When you, the, the, the prime minister, the guy who heads the government has written borderline racist commentaries on, on Muslims before, it has a history of it, right? But it's disgraceful. It's absolutely disgraceful. Yeah, I fully agree, Gav. I mean, my experience in Nusra Ghani was of a minister who understood the brief and was doing it almost as a liver. Thank you very much, Gavin Van Maal, for joining me today. You're very welcome, Mike. Thanks very much for having me on. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. A shout out to OEC's Jason Hay for his marvellous baritone introduction to this podcast. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon. Mm-hmm.